Thanks very much, Darren. Great to have uh, that read for us uh, in two parts. Thank you, Alec, as well, uh, for that. Uh, we're going to be looking at this 14th chapter tonight and trying to work out what is God wanting to say to us. And so I'm going to pray and ask his assistance for us tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this word presented to us. Thank you that it's in our own language. Thank you that we have this time in our week set aside. We ask now that you would give us open hearts, that we will be ready to hear what you would say through your word, and we pray for your help through your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I want to start off by thinking a little bit about this. Uh, This is a green pasture. Uh, It's a place where the grass is greener, at least greener than Oran Park, is that right? No. Okay, good. It, it's, uh, it's pretty green. Uh, there's a turn of phrase, and maybe some of the younger people here don't know this turn of phrase, um, but there's a turn of phrase that says, is the grass greener, or the grass is always greener somewhere else. Um, if you haven't heard this turn of phrase before, it's trying to say that you imagine that the world is better somewhere other than where you are. The world is better somewhere other than where you are. And so it's often that people will think, man, if only I had a different job, if only I was studying a different topic than the one that I'm studying now, a different, a different course. Maybe I'll, if only I was in a different relationship, everything would be going fantastically in my life. Or maybe it's just, maybe there's a better life for me somewhere else. So the question becomes, is the grass always greener somewhere else for you? And I want to say a very theological answer to that question. Nope. The grass is not always greener somewhere else. And and this is the key thing I want us to think about tonight. All the grass is God's. Uh, The grass where you are right now and the grass somewhere else. All of it is God's. The question is, can we find contentment with God where we are? For some of us, Knowing that it's all God's grass, some of us will need to be obedient right where we are for a long time. We'll just need to be better at being obedient right where we are, not considering the other grass. Uh, We need to be obedient for a long time. And particularly if you're married, this is you. Congratulations. Uh, Obedience, long obedience in the same direction. Okay, Uh, That's really good. Uh, For some of us, God has incredible plans and purposes for us, and they might not be here. Maybe some of us will end up taking the good news of Jesus far away. And so there's a radical change in the future for us. The problem is, if we spend our whole time pining away for some other place, for the place where the grass is greener, we will never learn contentment. And we will never know what it is to live as people who trust in God right where we are now. So what we're going to see tonight is that the people of God have found themselves wondering where the grass is greener. Okay, that's, that's really what we're up to. If we look at our Bible timeline, uh, you'll know that we're working through the Old Testament section of our Bible timeline here. There's the New Testament over here. And last week, Tim got us to the point where we received the Ten Commandments. So uh, Abraham had been given a promise. Remember, there are three promises that were given to Abraham. Does anyone remember what they are? Land. Sorry, no, you're going to have to speak a bit louder. Yeah. People, yep, offspring, and blessing. That's right, they're going to be a blessing to the whole of the earth. So they were going to have a land. And God told them that they wouldn't get it tomorrow, that they would have to be captives in Egypt. And we saw that happen. And then last week, Tim 
really helpfully showed us how God led the people out from captivity and brought them to the place where they were going to receive the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. So they got the law and they got right to the boundary of the promised land. The promised land is the green grass in my timeline here, okay? And they got right to this point. And then if you have a look, I'd love you to have your Bibles open. Um, In chapter 13, so just before where we had the reading tonight, and verse 2, or 1 and 2, we see this. The Lord said to Moses, Send some of the men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. Now, does anyone know how many tribes there were of Israel? Twelve is the right answer. So how many leaders were sent into the land? Excellent. We're doing really great so far. So the next bit of the passage there, you can see it lists all the names. And that's good. We, we don't need to say them out loud, but they, they all get a representative. And they go into the land. Now, it's really interesting. The command to go and explore the land was God's. However, I think we're going to see that what Moses tells the people exploring the land to do causes them problems. Have a listen as we look at the next part of this chapter 13. Join with me at verse 18. So he's talking to those who are going to explore. He says, See what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. So he's kind of giving them a checklist. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. Now, this is fine, right? What what happens here is they're told to consider the promised land. My hesitation is, I think if you ask them to look like this, you end up with a decision. The decision, if you go with column A, the decision is don't go in, right? Go and investigate the land. If it looks like column A, don't go in. If it looks like column B, let's go get it, right? It's an awesome land and everything, they're, they're weak, they're not, so let's go get them. And so I actually think, strangely enough, that Moses giving them this checklist to check out the land actually causes them, I suggest, to doubt whether it's going to be a good land. So let's take these ideas and see what they did find when they went into the land. Uh, We're going to have a look at the report for when they come back. This is 40 days later after they've wandered through the promised land. But they go a long way, something like 400 kilometers worth of exploration. Okay? They go a long way. Here's what they found, verse 26. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. Uh, there they reported to them and to the whole Israelite assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. 
And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had, they'd explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we look the same to them. Now, do you see what happened? There are some parts of the equation which look pretty good. The land's flowing with milk and honey. Now, this is always one of those turns of phrase that has perplexed me all the time when I've been a kid. What does it mean for the land to flow with milk and honey? Sounds like a mess, doesn't it? Left over from breakfast. Okay. Well, what it means is you have to have good soil to have good grass. If you've got good grass, you can have cattle that will produce good milk. Milk. And there will be lots of trees in the land. You need the trees because wild honey grows in trees. Okay, so a land flowing with milk and honey has good soil and plentiful trees. How good is that? Okay, um, but the towns are fortified, and so what we have is there's a split in the people who went in to explore the land. Some say, let's go. Well, two out of 12, and 10 of them say, this is a bad idea. We're going to die. Let's not do it. Well, how did they get to this point where it looks like there's such a problem? Have a look at what sort of a problem it is. Chapter 14, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us out to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, you guys are pretty smart. You've been listening to this sermon series. What was their status in Egypt? What was the, what was the state of the people of God in Egypt? They were slaves. Were they happy about being slaves? In fact, they cried out to God and said, God, why haven't you heard us? Save us. And now on the edge of the promised land, Right here on the very edge, they're saying, stop, we're not going to go in. We're not going to go in because it's too frightening. That's very strange, isn't it? They say, we'd rather go back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves. We wish we died in the desert. Well, how did they get to there? How did they get to a state of thinking we should die in the desert, we should go back to Egypt? I want to suggest to you that there's at least three reasons. The first one is that they forgot. They forgot. Now, I used to live in Wollongong, and I love Wollongong because it's got the steelworks in it, okay? And the steelworks mean there is always a pillar of cloud by day. I took this picture. A pillar of cloud by day. And at night, there's a pillar of fire. And if you've never been to Wollongong and seen the pillar of fire, you need to go down. It's just fantastic, right? It's a big polluting mess, the steelworks. But I love it because we always know God's at home in Wollongong, okay? It's just fantastic, all right? So, but here's the thing. God was literally appearing like a pillar of cloud by day with his people and by a pillar of fire at night. Each day they would eat manna from the ground. God was still providing manna miraculously for them right up until this point. And the reason they got out of Egypt was because God wiped out the mightiest army in the world. Oh, we can't go into the promised land. It's really scary. They forgot, didn't they? They forgot God's goodness. They, they also, they denied the good that they saw. They sent spies into the land and they went and saw it was good. They saw the grass literally was greener, right? 
And it says that they went and got some of the produce of the land. I don't know if you guys noticed this. But they said that two guys came back with a pole, and in between on the pole is a, a, a bunch of grapes. It's so heavy, they need two guys to carry it. You're not going to find that up at Woolies, right? Okay. It's a big deal. The land is abundant and fruitful, and they're just denying it. Nope, we don't want to go in. We want to go back and make bricks in the desert in Egypt. They're just denying the goodness of the land that God had promised. And thirdly, they're worried about their families. They say, well, actually, it would be terrible for our families to risk taking the land that God has prepared for them. So what we're going to do is I'm going to take my family, who I care about very much, back to Egypt where they'll be slaves for life. It, it seems like their priorities are messed up. They think they're caring for their families, but they're actually condemning them. Well, to think about this next bit, I want, I want you to remember that time in primary school where you had to pick sides for a team. And um, let's say that you're playing basketball, right? Uh, and so it, here's everyone lined up. You're in year three or something. And there's one kid, you know, who's had the growth spurt early. Do you know that, that kind of kid? And so they're, they're kind of six foot, even though everyone else is down here. And, and you know that if you're picking first, who do you pick first? You pick the tall guy, because if he's on your side, you're going to win, right? If he's on your side, you're going to win. So who's on your side is the question I want us to think about when it comes to this next bit of the reading. Have a listen to how Joshua and Caleb are thinking. Uh, chapter 14, verse 5. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If God is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we'll devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So, so what are we seeing here? Well, first thing to note is they tore their clothes and we're like, why would you do that? Well, clothes are really valuable. And when you tear your clothes, you're saying, I, I am so overwhelmed. I have nothing of greater worth than my my incredible distress in this situation. So these guys are going, we can't do this. How could we miss out on the promises of God? So they have godly grief. They see God's good plan. They say, God told us it was there. It's just there. Let's go do it. And the thing that gives them confidence is they, see, they say that the protection of the people in the land is gone. In um, Genesis 15, when God gave the promise to Abraham, he said that they... Amorites, the sin of the Amorites, has not yet reached its fulfillment. So he said it's going to be 400 years before you get into the promised land. You'll be slaves until then. But then their protection's gone. And so the guys are going, we can take the land. God has laid it open for us. And why are they so confident? They're confident because they picked the biggest kid to be on their team. Who's that? God. It says here, it says here, their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Did you know that you and God is a majority? You and God is a majority. You know, remember uh, David walking out against Goliath? You remember that story, don't you, church? Just give me a nod now. 
and catch up with me later, okay? But you remember David going out against Goliath. Why did he walk out? Well, he walked out because he walked out with God. And he knew that whatever the size of the people who were opposing him, he and God, they were in the majority. He had the strongest person on his side, despite what he could see with his eyes. Okay? And so Caleb and, and uh, Joshua are there going, no problems. We've got the biggest kid on our team. We're going to win. Well, I'm gonna, we're going to read the next bit here. But to get the heart of it, I want you to think with me about relationships with a, uh, for a second. Um, does anyone know what the biggest killer to a relationship is? There's the whole lot. But the biggest one is if we start treating the other person in the relationship with contempt, with contempt, where we don't honour them, where we don't value them. If we treat others with contempt, the relationship will die. Have a look, keep that word in mind, have a look at verses 10 to 12. Did the pep talk work out? Verse 10. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Did it work out? No, it did not work out. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I'll make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. What's going on here? Well, they're about to stone Caleb and Joshua, the only faithful guys, right? And so God intervenes for the faithful. His glory shines. And everyone's, I guess, stones in hand, stops. And then God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save my faithful guys and I'm going to wipe out all the unfaithful. So God intervenes for the faithful against the faithless. And then he says, Moses, do you know what I'll do? This great horde of unfaithful people, I'm going to wipe out. But I'm going to make you a nation stronger than them. In essence, this is God saying to Moses, you're going to be my new Abraham. You're going to be my new Abraham. I'm going to put all of my promises on you. Now, that's pretty remarkable. I wonder what you think you'd say. God says, Tim, congratulations. The rest of these guys, faithless. I'm going to wipe them out. But you, my boy, well done. I'm going to put all of my promises onto you. What do you think you'd say? Bring it on. I didn't like those guys anyway. I'd love to be the most important. I'd love to be the chosen one. I'd love to be the special. Any Lego movie buffs out there. What we're about to see is something extraordinary. And I want you to notice it really carefully because it will answer the question, what does a priest do? What does a priest do? Have a look with me at verses 13 and following. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face and that your cloud stays over them and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, "Mm, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness." 
Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. See, what does Moses do? He doesn't say, I'd love to be the most important person. No. Instead, he talks to God and he says, God, if you wipe them out, your name will be dishonored. Your name, your reputation in all the world will be smeared. And they'll say, God failed. Don't do it, God, for the sake of your name. And then he says, more than that, God, your character is dependable. You've told us what you're like, and I know what you're like. I'm going to say, God, be the forgiving God you say you are. Well, what does God do? What does God do? It says in verse 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. You see, God will always act for his name and for his glory. Have a look at this extraordinary passage in Ezekiel. Now, this is centuries later. Uh, it's not out of character. The people of Israel are still being rebellious. Okay. But God is going to save them. And uh, here's what he says. This is really, I think it's surprising for us. So listen carefully. The Lord says to Ezekiel, Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. Uh, profane means where you've made people speak badly about my name. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I'm proved holy through you before their eyes. God says, you know what? I'm going to save you. And I love you and I care about you, but I'm not doing it for you primarily. I'm doing it for the honor and glory of my name, Yahweh. I'm going to hold up my name. I'm going to make myself glorious in all the world. And that's why I'm doing it. So what do we learn from this? Why did this happen? Because it seems like God changes his mind, doesn't he? Yep. So he says, I'm going to wipe them out, Moses, and I'm going to make you the most important person. And Moses says, hang on, don't do that, God. It won't be good for your reputation. And I know your character. Don't do it. So what, why did that happen? God, God seems to have changed his mind. Well, I want to suggest three things. Number one, it tells us about Moses' character. I want that guy to lead me. He is more concerned not for his personal glory, but that God gets the glory. So it shows us about Moses' character. Secondly, it shows us about God's character. God is dependable and trustworthy and forgiving. Thirdly, it gives us some encouragement to intercede. Does anyone know what that word means? Speak on behalf of, to intercede. See, if Moses had just said, sure, God sounds like a good plan, God would have gone ahead and done it. But here we see Moses has prayed to God and it changed the course of what was happening. Do you want to pray for people who are on a course that looks like it's going to destruction? I do. We are encouraged tonight to intercede. How should we speak to God? Well, this story helps us too. It says we should speak to God about his glory. God, your name be made great. It says that we should speak about God's character. God, I know who you are. I'm going to talk to you about your character. 
Thirdly, it tells us that when we pray God's plans, he delights to answer our prayers. Now, do we know what God's plans are? What's his big, overall, massive plan? Well, in Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 2, here's what it says the massive plan is. It says that Jesus came, that he died, and then it says in chapter 2, verse 9, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is the bit we need to know. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What's God doing in the world? He wants every knee to bow before Jesus and to lift his name up. That's what we know. That's what God's on about in the world. And we are on about that in the world, aren't we? We're here to see new life in Jesus come to, Jeff prayed it beautifully today, every home. That's what we're here for. So when we pray, we pray, God, your name be honoured. We pray, your character says you're a merciful God. And we pray God's plans, Lord, help more knees to bow to Jesus now. They'll be good prayers. God will delight to answer them. Uh, has anyone been to uh, Queensland and been on the rides uh, up there? Some of you might have. Have you been on a ride where there's a height restriction? Okay. Typically, the height restriction means the adults get to have the fun and the kids don't. Is that right? We keep the little kids off it and the adults have all the fun. I want you to see that this passage tells us the opposite happens. The opposite happens. Have a look with me at verse 20 and then 28 to 31. In verse 20, it says, I have forgiven them. God says he will not wipe them out immediately. And yet, in verse 28, it says, So I tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said will be taken as plunder, well, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness. See, here's the radical thing that happens, right? There are those who held God in contempt, they didn't trust God. And then there's Caleb, and there's a difference, a world of difference between those two. And then we see God hears their grumbles. He said, I heard you grumbling. It's funny, isn't it? When they're in Egypt, what do they want God to hear? God, do you hear my cries for mercy? And we wonder whether he does. But he did. Here's the scary bit. God doesn't just hear our cries for mercy. He also hears our cussing, our cursing, our grumbles. God hears them. That's a pretty serious thought, isn't it? God hears our grumbles as well. And then we see the wilderness wipeout, where it's actually the adults who will miss out. Everybody who is 20 years or older will die in the wilderness. They won't get to go into the promised land because they were unfaithful. Instead, the kids, everyone under 20, you will learn. You will have the opportunity to trust God and go into the promised land. And the results come through. God does forgive, so he doesn't immediately wipe them out. But there are consequences. For the leaders who were of the 10 tribes who said the land is terrible, God says they'll die from a plague. And the people go, oh, that's terrible. I tell you what, what we'll do, God, what we'll do is, we're sorry, 
all right, we get it now. We're supposed to go into the promised land. No, no, no. Now you're not supposed to go into, no, no, God, don't, 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 don't. We're, re- we're really going. We're going now. And so they push on to try and take the promised land and they lose. They lose the battle. They run from the field of battle with their tails between their legs going, this is terrible. They push on against God's will and they lose. And we see that they will be punished. For 40 years, they'll wander in the desert. For 40 years, they will wait until the last of the generation, 20 years or older, dies. Can you imagine being the last one? Imagine being all the kids. You're a 20-year-old, right? And you're looking at somebody who's, say, I don't know, they're going to be 20, 25. Say they're 45, right? Ooh, close. Uh, say, they're, say they're 45. And you're just, you're just waiting. Gee, I wish you'd die. You're the last one. We can't go and take the promised land, faithless one. We can't, we can't get into the promised land until you die. I don't think it was like that, but you can imagine how di- difficult it would be. If you knew, if you knew we can't go and get into the promised land until every one of this generation has died 20 years or older. Another funeral today, we're getting closer. Terrible thought, right? But that's what it means. That's what it meant. They died in the desert. All of them had to die before the young bucks. You guys are taking over the church. Is that right? Kids? Yeah, great. Until you guys, actually, let's do the split. Uh, everyone uh, over, over 20, stand up, please. Seriously, everyone over 20, stand up. Okay. All right. Uh, kids, look around. You young people, you're inheriting the land. Uh, the rest of us have to die. I can take a seat now, please. Uh, that's right. There are, can everyone who's taking the land stand up now? Everyone under 20, uh, just stand up and take the land. Come on, come on. Take the land, take the land. Yeah, yeah, get up, Jack. Come on, yeah, well done, guys. Oh, uh, there we go. Okay, into your hands. God is committing this land. Well done, guys. Take a seat. I look forward to seeing you because obviously I'm Caleb or Something else or something, right? Yeah, I'm getting through. So, guys, what do we do? What do we do with the story? This story is, it's more than 3,000 years old. It's about people dying in a land that's so far away from us here in Australia. What do we do with it? I want to suggest five things that we can think. First of all, I want you to know that the grass is green where God is. The grass is green where God is. If you're thinking, man, I wish I was somewhere else right now, can I say to you, the answer isn't to get away from, from where you are right now, it's to draw God into where you are right now. Everyone hearing me carefully? It's not to run away from where you are now, it's to draw God into where you are right now. Now those circumstances may change, but the grass is greener where God is, not somewhere else than you are right now. Second one, I want to be very careful, I want to say this carefully, Don't wish yourself back to Egypt. The people of God were insane. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. It was a crazy exchange. For some of you, you didn't grow up in Christian houses. You didn't grow up in Christian families. You knew what it looks like to follow your own desires and passions in this world. And maybe you're thinking, man, I can't wait. I I, I wish I had more freedom. Sunday night, I have to come to church. What a drag. And, and I, I give my money for the kingdom. I could, I, could, I could spend, I'd have more money for myself. But as you make that exchange, as you wish yourself back, I want you to know that there's death there. There is no hope, no life. Don't wish yourself back into slavery to sin again. This new life that you found in Jesus, 
is life and life to the full. Don't wish yourself back to Egypt. Thirdly, the people were in trouble because they used their eyes. They said, we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. They thought they were small. They thought they were tiny, but God did not. And so my comment to you tonight is to say, let God define your identity. Not the people around you, not the people who speak to you, not how you think about what other people think of you, that entire crazy headspace you get yourself into. Instead say, who does God say I am? Daughter, son of God, saint of the most high, inheritor of all things with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you are. Whatever your challenge today, whatever you're going to on Monday, don't let the world define who you are. Let God define who you are and walk in that. Fourthly, I need to say this. Those who treated God with contempt died in the wilderness. They did not enter the promised land. And so I want to say to you tonight, don't let contempt towards God settle in your heart. Don't have a sneer. Don't have a hard heart towards God because you will not enter the promised land. And lastly, this is really good. I actually think the encouragement from this passage is, let's be adventurous. Let's be adventurous. God plus you is a majority. You know, you know our church is faithful, adventurous, compassionate, enduring. Let's be adventurous. Our vision is seeing new life come to every home. Is that easy to do? Not they add six homes a week here. And you think, who wants to let, there's a sign on the door that says, don't knock. Right? Literally, I see, see these signs. Don't knock on my door. Don't put any junk mail. How are we going to see new life come to every home? It seems like it's so hard to go into the land. Except, who's with us? God? God is with us. And what he's looking for is a generation of people to say, we will go. We will go. We're not bringing swords to the rest of Oran Park, thankfully, right? We're bringing the word of life. And I'm inviting you to say, let's go be adventurous because our God goes before us. And we know for the glory of his name, for the honor of Jesus, that we want to see new life in Jesus come to every home. Let's be adventurous, church. What I want to keep doing with this Old Testament series is this. I want you to choose to find your story in his story. Make sense of who you are in light of who God is and what he's doing in the world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you're good and gracious and powerful and mighty. You're the one who is with us. Father, I pray that you fill us up so that we know who we are in your sight, so that we would have boldness to take the land that's before us, not for death, but for new life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. Thank you, Annabelle. Uh, a little bit fired up at the end there. It's okay, Sunday night. Um, are there any questions from the passage tonight? Or you might just have been reading something fun this week and you want to say, do you know the average of the opening batsman? No, I, I. You can literally ask me anything in question time, but it might be relevant if it's related to the passage. Michelle. So does God change his mind? What a fabulous question. What do you think, Michelle? <laughs> here's, here's what I think. 
Um, I think God doesn't make mistakes. I think God doesn't waste anything. And I think that this uh, exchange between God and Moses was incredibly formative for Moses. And I believe that God was using what he revealed to Moses about his plans to draw from Moses something that perhaps he didn't know he had. Um, I don't believe that God changed his mind. I think he declared his intention, which actually will be carried out. They will all die in the wilderness, but he's going to be merciful in between and he rewards the faithfulness of his leader. And so I would suggest to you that when we look at a situation and we think, God, it looks like you're going to do this, I'm going to intercede every time because maybe what God is doing is waiting for me and my character. Does that make sense? And so will I intercede? Will I stand up? Or will I fall back and go, nothing I do matters. God, you've got everything in control. Unless the God who has everything in control was waiting for me to play my part in his plan. Does does that make sense? So in every situation I find myself in, I figure God says he wants to respond to my prayer, so I'm just going to pray like crazy. Okay? And Moses gives me hope to do that. However, at the ultimate level, does God change his mind? I don't think so. But I think his way of revealing himself to Moses draws out from Moses exactly what he wanted, which is to reveal his character as a leader for God's people. Does that make sense? Okay. Someone else? Oh, go on. You've got questions. Yes, Peter. Why do most... Young Australians want to travel overseas. Ah, why do most Australians want to travel overseas? Sorry, Jeff? Uh, Because it makes you appreciate Australia more. Yeah, well, that's true, having just come back from overseas. Peter, what do you think? Because God's grass is greener here. Yeah. Mate, I I think actually there's there's a a really helpful comment there. And um, I would tentatively say to us, Uh, It is very easy to think that the best thing for your life is to travel and get experiences. And it's entirely possible that that isn't the best thing for you and that the best thing, who would have thought, is knowing and loving God wherever you are. And right here might be that space. Very helpful comment. Thank you, Peter. Um, Yes, comment. Question, Paul? No, I thought you were putting your hand up. Paul's going, there's no way I was putting my hand up. Uh, Tim. Behind you, Annabelle, oh. and then the other Tim. Tim. Um, I should probably know this, but does Moses outlive everyone else of that generation? Because in Deuteronomy, he's talking to the children, yep. um, which hints that he's the last sort of remaining member of the generation. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, it, says, it says, except Caleb and, and Joshua and, uh, and Aaron and Moses, I think, is the, uh, the thing. Although both of, them, both of them die before they get into the promised land. And so there is a reality that although they live long, it's probably we're waiting for Moses to die. Is that where you're going, mate? Yeah, the guy we're waiting to die is Moses. Um, but, but yeah, they don't get to see. The, uh, Moses sees the promised land, but he doesn't go in. Tragically, I think. Uh, Peter, are we going to add? Moses didn't die. He was taken by God. Thank you. Helpful. But he doesn't enter into the promised land. So that's good. Thank you, Peter. Tim. Um. So the people over 20 and over died. Yes. Uh, and Moses or was taken. Um, 
Okay, so there's a judgment by God on those. Does that mean that all those people won't see eternal life? Here's the first answer to that. I can answer that really quickly. First thing is, I'm not God, and I don't get to declare the verdict of God myself. What you're asking for me to do is to speculate about that. So is everyone really clear? This is a really good, really good thing for you to think about. If someone says, did that person go to hell? Okay, your first answer must be, I'm not God, and I don't get to declare. Everyone really clear on this? We do not know. We don't declare the eternal verdict that belongs only to God. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is, Stuart, would you wildly speculate as to whether these people uh, got, into, got into glory or not? Um, I think if you're an Israelite, heaven is the promised land. Okay? And that the test before those people in their lifetime was by faith, will you trust God to enter into the promised land? I think the fact that they rejected God and they turned their back on him and died in the wilderness meant, practically speaking, they didn't get to go to heaven. Does that make sense? Are we going to see them in glory? I don't know the answer to that. And I would humbly submit, I'm not sure anyone else does either. Is that all right? It's a really thoughtful question, though. Thanks, mate. One more at the back. Yes. The number 12, you know, we have uh, 12 um, members going to check out the land, and then we have the 12 disciples. Is there a significance in that number? Yes, thank you. It's a great question. Uh, 12 go into the land, then we have 12 disciples. When we get to Revelation, we actually have 144,000 around, around the throne, which is, anyone? 12 times 12. 12 times 12. Okay, really interesting. Okay, so is 12 significant? Very, very significant. When Jesus chooses 12 disciples, essentially what he's saying is, I'm making the new Israel. Okay? I'm the leader, and I'm choosing for me 12 new tribes, in inverted commas. Okay? Here's my 12 inner 12. That number is very significant, and it's no mistake that Jesus has 12 disciples, and there were 12 tribes. Okay? That's a good pickup, and that's exactly right. Those things echo each other. Thank you. One last question. We're all good? Come and see me at supper. That'll be great. I'll stop there. Um, thank you for your questions. I love this part of our service. It's the reason that you should come in the evening, isn't it, everyone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Um, thank you. Annabelle. Annabelle.